Welcome to the State of Affairs in partnership with Serbian Radio Chicago. We are having conversations that matter. And I am joined by a great man today who does not need much introduction, Colonel Doug McGregor. He served as President Trump's senior Pentagon advisor. He's a writer. He is one of our most decorated veterans. Colonel, welcome back. Thanks. First, before we start, and there's a lot to unpack, I wish to thank you on behalf of Serbian American community and Serbian Radio Chicago for being with us in Chicago a couple of weeks ago. It was a really wonderful event, and everybody really enjoyed meeting you. Well, the honor was entirely mine, believe me. Thank you. So let's dive in right away. There's been some renewed crisis in, in Kosovo, and obviously you have been a participant ever since the 1990s in the Balkan affairs and, and uh, the entire destruction of uh, Yugoslavia. You have seen it firsthand. What do you make of it? What do you make of uh, this recent, um, these recent events? Well, we have to look at what's happened recently as an extension of what's been going on for at least two decades at this point. Uh, we created an unsustainable status quo. When I say unsustainable, it could not be maintained without the presence of foreign military forces. And that's, of course, the last thing in the world that you want to create. You want to create some sort of solution when you intervene, as we did, with which all the parties can ultimately live. We failed to do that. We had an opportunity uh, in 1999 in the first part of the year, January, February timeframe, at Rambouillet to come to a solution that would have ultimately partitioned Kosovo. Uh, especially the part that is inhabited almost exclusively by Serbs up along the Serbian border with provisions to then move additional Serbian uh, citizens from other parts of Kosovo up there with the cost and so forth borne by the international community. <clears throat> Again, the Germans in particular were quite willing to front money to pay for the movement of people around to create communities with which they could all live. This, of course, was rejected out of hand. And at the time, <clears throat> the argument that was made, we have to teach these Serbs that they must live in the new diverse Europe. They must learn to live, quote unquote, with diversity. So this is the, <clears throat> this is the early stage of diversity, equity, and stupidity that uh, the administration has pursued now for some time. And if you look at the actors at the top of the current administration and go back to the 90s from 1995 until 2000. You see some of the same personalities. They were more junior then and have become more senior now, but it's the same problem. So we have something that is a permanent wound that will not heal. And we, there's an unwillingness to accept the fact that what the Albanians want, the Muslim Albanian regime in Pristina is to govern the whole place and impose themselves on the Serb population. Surprise, surprise. Orthodox Christian Serbs do not care to have that imposition. So until we reach some sort of accord that frankly divides this child in, in the fashion that I was describing, nothing is going to change. This is going to keep coming up and coming up and coming up. Adding but more troops to it is, is, is not going to fix anything. So I was going to ask in light of the recent crisis, um, Stoltenberg, announced that they were sending more troops. And interestingly enough, 
um, the Turkish troops were sent. And, and I must say I was surprised by that, especially given Erdogan's uh, recent election. What do you think? Well, we know that uh, uh, Mr. Erdogan and uh, the Turkish state uh, are both very, very popular in Kosovo and Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina and so forth. I don't think that was necessarily a Turkish initiative. Uh, obviously, I'm no longer on the inside and can't prove that one way or the other. I can tell you that certainly 21, 22, 23 years ago, when I interacted with Turkish forces, they were extremely professional. And they behaved very, very well and did, did a great job for, in my judgment, NATO and the United Nations at that point. Uh, they went, went out of their way to cultivate good relations with the Croats, uh, and Slovenes, others who were not obviously Muslims. Now, the Turkish armed forces have changed a lot over the last 20 years. They have been through a process of Islamicization. Uh, many, many senior officers that I knew are no longer there. There were officers that I knew quite well that ended up in jail. So I don't know how this new Turkish force will behave. Their record in the past has been professional. We can, all we can do is hope that that will turn out to be the case this time around. Okay. Um, just to go back to your comment mm-hmm. about the initial um interest in alleged diversity of uh the Serb population, particularly learning to live with diversity. Looking at it today, Serbia in fact, in the entire breakup of, of Yugoslavia, <clears throat> Serbia is the most diverse country, but then you look at Croatia, you look at Kosovo, especially the areas well where Albanians live, and then that portion of Bosnia, the Federation, it is completely ethnically clean. So they have cleansed everyone else. And Serbs have always lived in a very diverse, there's some 60 plus different nationalities that live today in Serbia. However, it's the Serbs that need to learn the virtues of diversity where the rest of them have actually cleansed the Serbian population and are living in completely ethnically clean areas. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And <clears throat> I was in the Kraina shortly after that was ethnically cleansed by the Croats. And sadly, we actually encouraged that at the time. So I think you have a, a two-faced operation on the one side. The Serbs are the ones that have to be punished and learn all these hard lessons while everyone else is given a pass. I think this too goes back to Bosnia and the experience there. The senior people took a, an instant and permanent dislike to the Serbs. And ultimately what happens in Kosovo is another attempt to dislodge Slobodan Milosevic from power and to quote-unquote punish the Serbs. There's no question about it. Now, this is stupid, self-defeating, but then the whole decision-making process was self-defeating. One of the comments that was made early on in the discussions about what should we do was to go back to the Second World War and point out that after the Second World War ended, Poland, which was extremely diverse, that had millions of uh, white Russians or Belarusians, millions of Ukrainians, millions of Jews, as well as Poles, and it suddenly became an ethnically pure Poland because Stalin and FDR, to, to a lesser extent, concluded we have to create tribal homelands or we will never have peace in Europe. So that was that was the logic to some extent behind how Europe was organized after the Second World War. And at the time, people said, we, we need to do the same thing now for the Serbs 
and the, and the uh, Muslim Albanians and the rest. In other words, let's create security for each of these peoples inside borders they can live with. And over time, the borders will become less of an issue because that's been our experience in Europe. Well, that wasn't done. That advice was not taken. And we got back to this business of we're going to drive this evil man, Milosevic, and these Serbs, you know, into the corral and force them to behave the way we want them to. And then we're going to liquidate all the enemies who are responsible for all of these atrocities. Once again, atrocity being a one-way street, largely ignoring what had happened elsewhere and look almost exclusively at Serbia. The, ultimately, I think the uh, International uh, Criminal Tribunal did a better job. They went back and started to look at all of the people that were involved in certain things. But nevertheless, at the time, it was this obsession with the Serbs. Now, we should say that there is a bright light in this otherwise dark sky. I think the uh, American ambassador uh, in Kosovo stepped in and said, look, this this is not where we want to go. And I think the only thing we can hope for in the short run is a cooling off period where hopefully the two sides will move apart and uh, nothing, nothing drastic will happen. Uh, well, that's and that the was best my, we can hope for. That was my next question, if you don't mind. You did say that the State Department, and not only the State Department, the entire Western, um, Western leadership, let's say, um, issued stern warnings to Albin Kurti, and they essentially are laying blame on him for the recent developments. But he seems to be um not hearing any of this and not heeding their calls. So the question for Serbs is, well, who really is behind him? Because ultimately we know that the Albanians or even the Bosnians do not move unless they are told. So what is giving Albin Kurti this wind that he seems invincible right now? I think you. this is where you have to view what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, as well as what's happening in Bosnia as evidence for similar problems and as almost as a unified approach. The problem, I think, that occurred to, to the U.S. State Department and others in Europe was the last thing we need right now is a war in the Balkans between the Serbs and the Albanians, mm-hmm. between ourselves and the Serbs, while this uh, immense tragedy in Ukraine continues to worsen. So I think somebody stood up and said, this is a dumb idea. But remember, we right now in the United States, and I would argue that the elites, and certainly in Western Europe, are globalists as well. These are all protégés of our friend Mr. Soros in one way or another. And they, frankly, all believe in the same things. They're ideologues. They're pressing for the same kinds of things everywhere. They want to destroy Russia's borders. They want to destroy Serbia's borders. They want to flood Serbia with non-Serbs, they want to flood Russia with non-Europeans, whatever. It's it's the same everywhere. The problem is it hasn't worked in Ukraine. The Ukrainians are losing badly. And uh, right now there are lots of nervous people behind the scenes that know that NATO as a military force isn't ready to do much of anything. And one of the reasons I think the Turks were asked to come in was that they're not engaged right now in any way against the Russians. As a result, they have essentially a surplus of capability. They have soldiers who are not otherwise engaged in fighting, and they have military power that they can use on behalf of NATO. That's why I think they're there. It's not because someone had some sinister idea to put Muslim Turks 
into Kosovo. I think it's really, look, the, the, the one people that can do this right now who are ready and can send forces are the Turks. Everybody, no, else, is, everybody else is overwhelmed by the, the Ukraine business. Sure. You mentioned the partition of Kosovo that was discussed in the 1990s. Do you think that is possibly the bottom line, especially now linking that to Ukraine? Some of us think that the reason why they, the globalist elites, let's say, would be interested in starting another conflict in the Balkans is precisely because Ukraine is not going well. It's not going well for them. Uh, and the Balkans are always ripe for, for some of these sinisters, sinister games. Um, but partitioning Kosovo, Serbs will not accept that, especially Serbian Orthodox Church, that in fact owns much of the territory of Kosovo, has monasteries and churches there that have stood there for centuries. What would be the bottom line? And then you link that to, to Ukraine. Obviously, that may be another partition. And there have been a lot of conversations about the double standards between Kosovo and Crimea, for example, were screaming about sovereignty of Ukrainian borders. Why wasn't anybody screaming about sovereignty of Serbian borders? Well, I think I've already answered why no one is screaming about the Serbian sovereignty in any form. That's because the Clinton administration developed this visceral dislike of the Serbs and decided to demonize the Serbs. What happens in Kosovo is really an extension of what began in Bosnia. I mean, we could go back over that history. That would take us some time to cover all the details, sure. but I was party to that. I watched it. And even though people at the time in Bosnia looked at Tuzman and weren't terribly impressed with him, and many of them did not necessarily like Mr. Izabegovic, for various reasons, Izabegovic was given a pass. And there are still people in Washington who are strongly aligned with uh, Bosnia and Kosovo. And at the same time, Tuzman was hammered in the line at the time by Kohl, who was the chancellor of Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, so then, you know, we tried to get the Russians to, quote unquote, hammer the Serbs into line. Well, that didn't work terribly well. And when it came to Kosovo, it was under great, great uh, pressure and, and difficulties at home, frankly, that the Russians had at the time in 1999, that they finally pulled out from under uh, Milosevic and left him hanging. Uh, during the air campaign. I mean, he, I think the bottom line is as follows. If you go back over the last 500 years of European history, one of two things happens. Uh, a division of territory is arrived at by someone in power. Uh, in other words, the various representatives sit down and say, all right, if we don't come up with a partition of some kind, we're going to have another war. And several people would sit around the table. And I'm talking about going back to Metternich and Bismarck and, and Israel mm -hmm. and people. Sure. Look, this is not a permanent solution, this partition. But it's the best that we can do right now, and it'll buy us some time. Uh, the Congress of Vienna bought time for Europeans. It was not popular with many, many people. You go back and remember that while the Europeans were dividing up things, the great powers, the Serbs were still fighting the Turks. And, uh, you know, no one paid any attention to the skull towers of Nish. Yes. I mean, they didn't. Uh, people knew about it, but people said, look, we, we can't take that on right now. Subsequently, it changes. It takes time. And so I think there may be a willingness to look at some solution that is imperfect for the reasons that you've just outlined. And it may result in a partition of some kind and then guarantees 
that the property that belongs to the Orthodox Christian Church will not be harmed, will not be desecrated, and will be treated as uh, what it should be, as essentially international um, monuments uh, sure. to, to history. I mean, some of those, uh, I've been in, in, in Kosovo and some of those churches, and they're, they go back to the 8th century and earlier. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this, this is the beginnings of what we think of today in, in the world of Christianity. I think that could be done. But what I'm trying to say is that that may present itself. There may be an appetite for that, a willingness to do that. The Serb leadership then has to think through, this is not everything we want. We're only going to get 75% of what we want. We're not going to get the other 25%. We're only going to get 70, not the other 30. Well, do you accept that on the understanding that at some future point in time, there may be an opportunity to revisit it? Or do you you refuse it? And I don't know what the right answer is. This is something that has to be carefully considered by the Serbs. War is not a pleasant experience, and everyone in Yugoslavia knows that. Everyone went to hell back in the 90s. Sure. They need to recall that. And then you have us. We got involved in a big way. We were talking earlier about these B-1B bombers flying over Bosnia. Yes. Essentially some sort of signal to the... Serbian state that we're still here and we can still bomb you, which I think is appalling, uh, because most of us at the time thought that was a disgrace anyway. I mean, I've talked before about that. Sure. I didn't know very many people in Europe that thought that, you know, NATO existed to create a new war in Europe, which is ultimately what we did. So the bottom line is there are no perfect solutions right now. There may be an interim one. And everyone needs to look carefully at that. And our friend that's sitting in Pristina who feels that he has a lot of wind behind him may discover that in a couple of years, that wind is completely gone. And no one is going to particularly give a damn anymore about what he does or doesn't want. By the way, there are lots of people who notice lots of weapons that have been shipped to Ukraine that show up in Kosovo and then are moved elsewhere into the hands of people that we in the West would not want to arm. So again, he, he's got to rethink what he's doing right now. He's got backing. There's no question about it. That may not last, but he doesn't necessarily have the backing that he wants for a military confrontation because everyone's eyes and that on that point are fixed on Ukraine. Interesting. And you served under president Trump and we all remember that botched pull out from Afghanistan. Um, during the Biden administration now, um, many people make similar comments. Wait until the Americans leave Kosovo. And at some point that will come to an end. We simply as Americans cannot sustain this anymore. The Kosovars may find themselves in a really tricky situation, including our um, friend, the husband Kurti. Anyways, I wanted to move to, to Ukraine and um overnight, I believe, or yesterday, Kahovskaya Dam on Dnipro was taken out, or portion of that dam. What do you make of it? Who did it? Who benefits? Well, there are several stories right now. The Ukrainians, of course, have said, oh, the Russians did this. And there's not much reason to believe that, because the Russians could have done it a long time ago, didn't want to do it because it turns a great deal of the area in Kherson into marsh. Uh, it, it's not beneficial. And remember, the Russians have always conducted operations with a view to what things look like when they end. 
That's something we never consider very carefully, but the Russians have looked at that. So they have been trying to avoid what they would call unnecessary collateral damage. Where it's unavoidable, they'll do it, but uh, that was never really in the plan. The Ukrainians uh, are accused by the Russians of doing it. Well, if that's true, the the effects are as follows. You end up with uh, a portion of the Russian defense flooded on the east side of the Dnieper River. There's no question about that. Is does that help Ukraine? Well, if you're if you're looking at the length of the defensive line that the Russians have built, which was almost 900 miles, that shortens that line a little bit. But when you start shortening the defensive line, that doesn't favor the Ukrainians. In other words, that reduces the amount of territory to which the Russians need to respond in the event of a Ukrainian attack. Then there's a third story, and the third story is that one of the turbines inside the dam's uh, operation blew up. Hmm. And that comes from someone on the ground who is a Russian who who is apparently familiar with the dam. And if that's true, then the whole thing was was probably accidental. But again, if it's accidental, it really doesn't help Ukraine at all. Uh, it, it makes it tougher for them to do their job. But the Russians probably do benefit since they have less to defend now. Not that I think the Russians are in any danger. And if you go back and look at what happened over the last three days, we've had these so-called probing attacks from the Ukrainian side. Almost 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been lost, 54 tanks, 140 armored fighting vehicles, numerous trucks, uh, two helicopters, several uh, several Ukrainian aircraft. So these probing attacks into Russian defenses were disasters. Russian losses are almost negligible to the point of irrelevant. So bottom line is, uh, at this stage, I wouldn't attach too much significance to it except to look at look at it as probably reducing options for the Ukrainians, not improving them. Understood. Um, here in the United States, but obviously within the entire Western geopolitical construct, we don't seem to actually pursue any kind of a peace plan. There certainly is a war plan. And we know war is a racket. We understand that billions of dollars have been going to Ukraine, most of it ending up back here in some of our politicians' pockets. We have seen weapons all of a sudden in the hands of Mexican cartels. What is our bottom line? <laughs> well, you've asked, <laughs> Do we know? Yeah, well, you just asked the multi-million dollar question. Uh, I, I would tell you the bottom line is that there is no real strategy. What we have are large numbers of people at the top of the United States government who are ideologically committed for reasons of globalism and uh, neoconservatism. You can call it uh, diversity, equity, uh, inclusiveness. Well, I, I don't care, but these, these people are ideologues. They don't see the, the world through the same lens as we do. So there, it would be a mistake to impute rationality to them. If anything, they are emoting. Oh, got to punish those Serbs. They're out of control. Got to go after these Russians. They're evil. They're bad. Well, well, why are they evil and bad? Well, because they're not like us. And what are we? Well, we're the diversity, inclusivity, uh, equity. Stupidity. (laughs) Yeah. We're the ones with open borders that are destroying our own country. And that's what everybody has to do. Now, we've imposed a lot of that on Western Europe, as you know. Yes. And they marched down this very destructive path. This is what Orban talks about all the time. And increasingly, more and more Europeans in all the governments behind the scenes are making some of the same statements. Mm-hmm. 
but there's no strategy per se. No one sat down and said, all right, we're going to use our military power for this particular objective. We want this outcome. So what's the outcome look like? Well, if your outcome is the destruction of Russia and your, your unrestricted access to strip them of all their resources, uh, and essentially divide their country into multiple parts and, and destroy their leadership. Well, I'd say that's an unrealistic objective. And that's about the only thing I've ever heard. No one has ever said to me, well, we've got to come to a solution with which both Ukrainians and Russians can live with. Uh, you know, there's no one sitting there like Metanish, like Gorshakov uh, from okay. Russia at the time. Uh, Bismarck and others saying, well, wait a minute, you know, what do we want? What's in our interest? And some people saying wisely, well, we have no interest. The only interest we have is peace. That's been my argument from the beginning in Ukraine. I would make the same argument in the Balkans. What, what long-term strategic national interest does the United States have in these places? None. None. So what do we want? Well, we'd like to have peace. Why? Because peace promotes stability. Stability is good for trade and commerce. That used to be the American way. That's what we talked about. All of this changed with FDR. It started under Wilson. It's run out of control now. So there's no no identified strategic outcome. It, and that's why you're beginning to hear in, in uh, journals in the United States, well, perhaps uh, we we can live with a frozen conflict, as though the best outcome for Ukraine would be an outcome on the Korean model or on the East-West German model. Or no. even Kosovo model. <laughs> yeah. How does that promote stability and peace? Well, we know it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. So uh, at this stage of the game, I don't think anybody who's in charge has any idea of how to go forward. I think they're looking for Band-Aids, and they're worried about reputational damage. I mean, remember, the, the Russians have been running out of missiles since summer of last year. And my gosh, where did all the missiles come from over the weekend? And bullets. That's right. And the Russian armed forces are demoralized. Their, their commanders are incompetent. Everything's falling apart. And Putin, as a result, is going to be overthrown. Well, how's that worked out? On the other hand, when you look at Ukraine, Ukraine is in ruins. As a state, as a nation, it's destroyed. Anyone with a shred of humanity would look at that and say, this is unacceptable. But humanity plays no role for the ideologue. They're, they're pursuing their war against Russia. We're just using Ukrainians to do it. And Until the, regime, the last Ukrainian. Yeah, and the regime in Kiev is just a puppet regime. And by the way, uh, Mr. Uh, Courtney in uh, uh, Bosnia, or not Bosnia, in Kosovo, is concerned. Sure. Because uh, he too could, as you point out, end up uh, standing alone. When suddenly someone says to the United States, you know, we got real problems here. Yeah. We need to do things differently. And uh, quite frankly, nobody in the United States cares what's happening beyond the borders of the United States. I mean, everybody knows that it's a big country. Go to St. Louis or Seattle and say, well, what about those Serbs? Man will look at you and say, what? What are you talking about? So none of this rests on a rock-hard foundation. And uh, a friend of mine calls it Fugazi. Yes. Uh, Fugazi thinking, Fugazi strategy. I think that's where we are. It's Fugazi strategy. So you served under President Trump 
briefly, although many of us were hoping it was going to happen from the beginning of his administration. But um, he was somebody who followed his gut instinct, which is what a lot of people really liked. And he was that president of peace. Uh, there was no war during President Trump's administration, particularly in Kosovo, for example. He and Ambassador Richard Grinnell, uh, as his envoy, consistently talked about the economic de- development, as you mentioned, the American way. They were not worried about politics, about symbolism, recognitions. They wanted peace and prosperity. They felt the same way, and I know President Trump felt that um, same way, about the rest of the world. He met with the North Korean leader. Do we have any hope that we can somehow vote ourselves out of this mess coming 2024, and continue this path of America first and continue the policies that really were successful under President Trump? Well, that's a loaded question, Olga. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I I don't have a good answer because I think many of us share in that hope, but many of us also know the way things are going in this country. It seems very unlikely that we could have – any degree of what I would call election integrity. Uh, there are so many loopholes. Just so that your Serbian audience understands something, we are still living under this constitution that was written in the 1780s. And in the 1780s, when the question was asked at the Constitutional Convention, well, who's going to run the elections that we're going to hold in this country? And remember, we had at that point no federal government at all. Somebody said, well, we don't have a federal government. The federal government doesn't really exist. We're not taxing anyone. We have no revenue. So somebody said, well, then the states are going to have to run the elections. And so how elections are run rests in the hands of state authorities. We have 50 states. There's no uniformity in terms of how the elections are executed. I mean, you're, I, I don't know what it's like in Serbia, but in most European countries, I'm familiar obviously with Germany. If you go to the polls in Germany, you walk in, you have to have your documents ready to prove who you are, that you're a citizen, that you're a legal resident wherever you're living. And then you are checked for your party affiliation. You belong to a party and there are members, representatives there of the parties. Everybody looks at the documents, looks at the individual and everybody has to agree. Yes, this person should vote. Then you're handed a paper ballot. You fill that out privately, and that goes into a box. And again, it's all supervised and policed carefully. Yes. Well, that's what we need in the United States. And if we had that, then I would tell you absolutely. I'm quite confident the American people would support what you're describing in terms of policy, position, and outcome. But that's not the case. And if you're operating with these phony absentee ballots, you end up with uh, 16,000 ballots for people who are lying in cemeteries somewhere who are eagerly counted when they shouldn't be or hundreds of thousands or millions of illegals who are allowed to vote when they shouldn't be able to vote. You end up with these outrageous tallies, which is what we saw. I mean, suddenly we had uh, Mr. Biden who had more votes uh, from the black community than Mr. Obama. Well, that's quite an achievement, you know. I mean, it's just nonsense. So I... I think the election integrity question is a big one, and I don't know that I can forecast anything right now. Sure. Finally, um, I think we all understand the depth of corruption 
that um, keeps coming up from the Biden administration. And you have mentioned some of the same faces that have appeared in the 1990s in, in Yugoslavia, in the Balkans. Yes, they were younger, but they created their entire legacies, political legacies on what happened in Yugoslavia. And here they are back again, part of the Biden administration. We look at this Hunter Biden laptop from hell and the connections to Ukraine and to many different areas in the world. Um, there was an informant that came forward and the FBI has the information that the Biden family is deeply corrupt, has received millions of dollars from foreigners while president, while, uh, during Barack Obama's presidency. And the FBI just told us, and I, I really need this to, to kind of settle in with all of us. The FBI told us that they cannot protect the informant that came forward with this information. And they have informed our congressional representatives of this. How is this possible? The people who currently govern us and populate the federal agencies, the executive branch, are, as we talked about earlier, ideologues. These happen to be ideologues of the left. The problem with ideology is it is treated ultimately like a religion. And the unfortunate tendency is to make the state the following statement. I'm correct. I, as a, as a leftist ideologue who run, who runs the FBI, who runs the CIA, who runs the National Security Agency, who is, who is running the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, whatever. I am right and I am morally superior to everyone else. If you disagree with me, then you are morally wrong. I am always morally right. That translates into permanent government. This is how we ended up in, in Bolshevik Russia with the dictatorship of the proletariat. The left voted itself into power in the United States and has every intention of staying in power. And it's a mistake to, to look at it from the standpoint of the two parties because this new dictatorship has lots of support from people call themselves Republicans in the status quo Republican Party and organization, which is beginning to look a lot like uh, controlled opposition. And for those of you who remember the Sovietized states in Eastern Europe after World War II, other parties, parties other than the Communist Party or the ruling Communist Party, whatever it was called, were allowed to exist, but they were controlled opposition. There were limits in terms of how far they could go and what they could say and so forth. We're beginning to see that on the Hill. And you're, you end up with a small minority of people on the right who are standing up and saying, well, this is wrong. This is not consistent with constitutional law. This is not consistent with the culture and the history of the United States. And they're simply being ignored. So I don't think anyone who has heard this from the FBI about what we call whistleblowers or, as you say, informants. And, and just so people understand, this, this is not a, an espionage case. This is not someone who is working against the government. On the contrary, this is someone who comes forward and says, listen, I've been in the in this organization for 20 years or 30 years or 15 years. I know what's right. I know what the regulations say. I know what's wrong. These people are doing things that are wrong and reporting that to the legislative body and urging them to take action. I mean, it's quite <laughs> legitimate. And suddenly, you know, the head of the FBI or the head of the Justice Department is essentially saying, well, they're on their own. 
incredible. We, we can't protect it, which tells you that the men in charge are ideologues who've decided they're right. Everyone else is wrong. Nothing matters but what they believe. And either you agree with them or you are the enemy. This is a terrible, terrible dilemma. And it's something that we have not historically faced very often in our history. It's not going to end well for any of us in the United States. But this is part of the paralysis that grips us in foreign and defense policy. We're on a path over which we Americans have very little influence at this point. On a path of unelected bureaucrats, both in the United States and Europe, terrorizing the world population. But remember, they are also being supported by lots of elected officials who are enabling them. True. They may not be driving it, but they're enabling it for the very reasons you point out. Because you would think in Congress, regardless of party affiliation, people would be outraged. Yes. They aren't. And they're not. And that is the fear, I think, for all of us come 2024 or any election, no matter who we elect, if we elect them, the permanent bureaucracy or whatever, if we wish to call them the deep state, the permanent state will always rule over us unless something changes. Well, something's got to change. I hope so. Colonel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Olga. Appreciate it.